Okay, so what would a fair social security system look like? Okay, so first of all, it's important to recognise that because of the existing economic model that we live in, inequality will always exist unless we shift the economic model. Welcome to Q Witness, the podcast from Quakers in Britain about taking action for sustainability, equality and peace. Quaker.org.uk slash Q Witness. This podcast is about economic inequality. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. This podcast is all about witness. Each episode, we look at an issue that Quakers are active on. And what are we talking about today? Well, I've been talking to Gupreet Bola and Mari Campbell-Jack about economic inequality. There's lots of issues coming up at this election, and it's wider than the election, really. So talking about some of the issues that people have been active on over the last couple of years. And because this is the last podcast before the election, Mm. I've also been catching up very briefly on the other areas that we are looking at in the general election. So what are the issues? Well, specifically, I caught up with Tim G and we talked about the narrative around forced migration during the election, which is one of the the big issues. And I also caught up with the other Tim who works here and he has been recently doing some work around the Nuclear Ban Treaty, which is another of the the key Quaker election issues. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing from Tim and Tim. Absolutely. But first, I think it's over to you. Great. I'm here with Gapreet Bola, who is the Economics Issues Programme Manager for Quakers in Britain. Hi, Gapreet. Hi. So, what do you work on? Oh, so I'm working on a variety of issues ultimately related to economic inequality. Okay. So, I'm looking at things like the social security system and uh, work and hunger and all how those issues intertwine in relation to the economy. Okay. Why do Quakers work on issues of economic inequality? So Quakers have a vision, and this is quoted, that equality springs from a profound sense of worth of every human being and that every person's life is sacred and this we are all equal. So Quakers' concern about economic inequality has been building particularly in the past 10 years since the financial crisis because it's obvious that incremental changes to our economy have really failed to deliver on the testimony that I just read out. That's true, and I think lots of people can notice Mm. changes within society which... Things feel more unequal, mm. people notice more homelessness, there are more people using food banks, that kind of thing. Exactly. Friends have become really deeply committed to supporting their communities through these services, such as homeless shelters and food banks, which makes the issue of economic inequality much more than graphs or statistics. And these yeah. connections with individuals and families that are struggling to pay their rent or keep a job are the things that we hear come up as concerns at yearly meeting. Okay, so that's really good to hear. And in the last couple of years, have there been changes to that? We would hope in recognition of the last 10 years since the crisis, that things would have changed, but actually things have become much, much worse. Mm -hmm. So over 250,000 people are at risk of homelessness or experiencing homelessness, and poverty and hunger has reached an affecting 8 million people across the UK. 8 million people? Yeah. That's a huge number. Yeah, that number's come from the Trussell Trust, and that's not even a good indication of the numbers because we don't have a national system set up to measure this, and Mm -hmm. not everyone facing hunger accesses food banks. Uh, So it's almost certainly going to be a lot more than that. And because of the way that the system is set up, economic inequality ultimately affects those who are already facing prejudice or discrimination because economic inequality intersects with social inequalities. And so those who are most affected are people like women, children, the elderly, disabled, LGBTQI folks, migrants, asylum seekers. And it feels like currently the system is doing the exact opposite to mm-hmm. what it should be doing, which is why we're seeing more and more inequality. Mm-hmm. So if you could, could you give me an example of how that works? So that say women are being massively discriminated against within society and within our economic system. Mm. How does that actually live out? 
So there was a study done by the Women's Budget Group that found that by 2020, tax and social security changes meant that low-income black and Asian women will lose around £2,000 per year from their household incomes, which is twice as much as low-income white men. So women, and particularly black and Asian women in the UK, are discriminated against for many reasons, because of race injustice and because Mm -hmm. of gender injustice. And the systems in which are developed to help support that are actually further discriminating because of the way that power lies within policy currently. (laughs) Which is a slightly complex thing to think about. But ultimately, if you have a set of policies that are designed by middle class white, mm-hmm. often men, they don't embody the principles of anti-discrimination yeah. within them. And so they ignore or neglect the needs of women, particularly black and Asian women. Mm. Yeah, it's hard to reflect those needs if you don't have many people actually representing precisely. people yes. in Parliament. Yes, precisely. Yeah. And then yeah. there's a deeper concern about the way in which the economy is structured and has been designed on a set of principles that are inherently discriminatory as well. And so what we see is inequality playing out in a way that further discriminates because the principles are already discriminatory. Which is we are exploring and have explored in the Mm -hmm. New Economy Project. And if you're interested in that, then please get in touch because um, the New Economy Project is thinking about ways in which the principles of a new economy can help hold the principles of the Quaker faith. And that is... Yeah, something that we need to change and something that we're doing. Okay, so if you're interested in that particular project, if you go to quaker.org.uk slash new economy, you'll be able to find out more about it and some of the things that Quakers are thinking about at the moment. Yeah. So what is the issue then with worsening inequality? Yeah, so friends have acknowledged that these injustices spring from uh, forces at work within the global economic system, as I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. and these are completely incompatible with Quaker testimony to allow Quaker testimony to flourish. I'm going to quote a a line from the report that was written up from Britain Yearly Meeting in 2014 that says that these forces infiltrate our hearts and minds, capture our politics and threaten our common basis for life on earth. This is nothing less than economic violence, which challenges our Quaker spiritual commitment for peace. So studies have shown that unequal societies have more health and social problems, they're less trusting, less altruistic, they have lower levels of happiness and social mobility, and there is a growing evidence to show that extreme levels of inequality also hurt our economy and our environment. So there is a real yeah, social cost to letting inequality continue to rise, and friends believe that we need to be having a concerted and deliberate action towards narrowing the gap between the richest and the rest. So in terms of the Quaker commitment to peace and kind of thinking about the sort of structural violence within mm. society, if we can try and tackle some of that, mm. actually we're building a more positive peace, essentially. Indeed, yes. You're building an economy that will sustain peace and... Rather than sort of develop causes of conflict. Precisely, yes. Okay. So you talked about the things that kind of came up from yearly meeting in 2014. Mm. What have we been speaking about? Obviously, the last election was in 2015. Mm. So what have we been doing on these issues since then? So since 2015, much of the same concerns that Quakers had previous to that remain, but system has become a lot more complex and the issues okay. have become a lot more complex. So the first area of concern is around work. So we know that the way that we work is changing because there's more and more precariousness as a result of short-term contracts and systems mm-hmm. that have been set up by something called the gig economy. The gig economy is an anonymous company structure such as Uber or Deliveroo where people sign up to a platform. Okay. They're referred to as being self-employed and being offered 
for the flexibility, but ultimately it's a system where you don't have any management. <laughs> There's no sick pay, maternity cover, redundancy, pension. So none of the things that make work secure. Yeah, that's a real challenge given how much work has been done to secure some of those mm. rights over the last few decades. Precisely. And coupled with that diminishing power of unions, as we saw with mm. recent go on unions. And mm. 7 million people actually rely on work such as this. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, people are also forced into zero-hour contracts that impose stress and anxiety and financial insecurity. And whilst we are told to celebrate low levels of unemployment because yeah. of the rise of self-employed people, low-paid work is also failing to catch up with the cost of living and putting more and more families under emotional and physical strain. So, it, Yeah, it's all very well having yes. low employment, but if that employment is quite precarious and yeah. people don't feel like... If there are people, li- people living ha- like month to month Precisely. and not sure whether they're going to have work next month, it's quite difficult. Yeah, so it's really important to read behind the statistics that we're offered. Mm. And each month we get given the unemployment figures and the unemployment figures are consistently showing that unemployment is getting lower and lower. But behind those figures, the situation is far much worse because there are okay. so many more people who are reliant on employment that is ultimately precarious and not supporting them and their enablement to flourish. Okay. The second concern is around hunger, which is a result of mm-hmm. this precarious work and also a situation which is potentially, well, very avoidable if we had a supportive social security system that was set up to protect us rather than uh, discriminate against us. Yeah. But currently, so as I mentioned earlier, the Trussell Trust which is one of the UK's largest food bank networks, estimated that 8 million families are struggling to put food on the table. And this is, again, affecting women, children, elderly, disabled, LGBTQI people, migrants and the unemployed and homeless. So the groups that are most vulnerable in society uh, are often the ones that face this more and more. And and also during holidays, the situation mm-hmm. gets much worse because children aren't able to access food at school. Yeah, that, so that's really worrying then that mm. actually we're coming up to school holidays now. Mm. Uh, is there something that if people are concerned about rising levels of hunger in that area, is there something they can do about it? Yes, definitely. I mean, I suppose continuing to support food banks because they're likely to be receiving greater numbers of users. So either providing to food banks or volunteering is often a really good way because you're able to meet families and and support in that sense. I think there is a possibility of things like autonomous food clubs set up. So if you are able to run lunch clubs at Quaker meetings that just offer a lunch, then that's sometimes better because if you know the reality of food banks where you're receiving tin goods... It some yeah. doesn't work out well if you're then not able to pay for electricity or gas to be able to heat the food or have the implements to be able to even access the food within the tin or the packaging. Yeah. So some logistical issues there. Though. Some logistical issues that sometimes you know, and then there's a sense of like building a community around actually being able to meet people and support yeah. on lunch clubs, and also of course making sure that your politician or your local MP knows exactly the situation that exists in your local area. Yeah, yeah really important to bring that up. You mentioned about the current social security system and how that is affecting people, mm. people's lives at the mm. moment. Can you tell me more about that? Mm. So since 2015, we've had universal credit come in and this has made some major changes to the way the social security is structured. It also means that there's delays and sanctions that are being imposed and driving people towards homelessness and hunger. Major cuts to the amount of money going towards universal credit, which is often justified by a divisive public discourse that disparages claimants, falsely implies that there's fraud is widespread and also fails to recognise that the large portion of claimants are actually in 
work um, okay. in work poverty. So they're working, but they're still in poverty. They're not able to access support because of the way that it's structured. There's been a few things more recently about the way that some companies don't pay tax and sort of the rise mm. in multinational corporations mm. basing their headquarters in different places. Mm. And I mean, essentially avoiding tax. Mm. What Quake has been saying about that? Yeah, so coupled, I guess, with the changes to uh, the social security system and the universal credit system, Quaker's concern on unfair tax system that has seen over 16 million, oh no, 16 billion loss in revenue to HMRC. 16 billion? 16 billion, yeah. And that's a HMRC figure. <laughs> okay. Uh, because companies such as Amazon and Google have instruments that enable them to avoid paying tax. And I guess we can assume there's also some interesting relationships that exist between HMRC and those companies. And presumably that they've got lots of lawyers as well. Yes, mm. presumably they have lots of lawyers. They have they just have many resources to enable them to set up those systems mm-hmm. so that they are easing their tax yep. <laughs> burden, which then obviously means that revenue isn't being invested into government pockets, which then means that things like social security systems are being strained and um, society isn't able to thrive through a compassionate social security system mm-hmm. like it should do. Um, the government tends to target more in, more people individually, maybe mistakenly filling in benefits, yes. than they would some of these larger companies, which have a huge potential for revenue. Yes, definitely. There have been a few reports that have suggested, I think this might also come from HMRC's own report, (laughs) or it might be another sort of uh, government arm body that suggests that HMRC should concentrate on larger pockets of money that are being avoided as a result of multinational companies rather than just going for small small claimants such as, um, you know, mistakenly filling out your form or just, yeah, small frauds basically, which are going to bring in barely anything in comparison to the billions and billions that could be claimed. It plays well for newspaper headlines though. Yeah, it claims, yeah, exactly. It works well with the existing discourse around fraudulent benefit claimants just to be able to perpetuate that. Yeah, that whole narrative of of strivers and shirkers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what would a fair social security system look like? Okay, so first of all, it's important to recognise that because of the existing economic model that we live in, inequality will always exist unless we shift the economic model. So a social security system will not be the answer, Mm -hmm. but it's absolutely important that we have one that functions to be able to ensure that no one goes hungry or is left in destitution. A social security system should be well resourced mm-hmm. to support the needs of every individual and family facing hunger or destitution. Rather than currently, what happens in, with universal credit is that access is limited to one earner in the family. Mm-hmm. So if you have, and that's often the man, so the man will receive the port rather than the woman. Okay. And if the second person in the family starts earning, then universal credit is removed. Okay, even if their income doesn't go above a certain level? Even if their income doesn't go above a certain level, yeah. Oh, right, right, okay. So we want one that does not discriminate against gender, sexuality, ethnicity, age, ability, class or citizenship status. These things should be obvious. <laughs> should be obvious, as opposed to now, like I mentioned, uh, with regards to the Women's Budget Group uh, mm-hmm. report, that shows that women are most affected by the changes to the current social security system. So if anything, these identities or these backgrounds should be forefronted in the way the social security system is designed so that they are the first people to receive the support that's needed. We want a social security system that removes all sanctions and replaces them with compassionate practice of understanding the full needs of claimants before removing support. Mm -hmm. Currently, there are very minor reasons as to why 
support is uh, removed. So it actively discriminates rather than supports individuals. Yeah. And people often don't get very much time and <coughs> appointments to actually talk about some of the things no. that, that are problems for them. Exactly. I have been a recipient of Job Seekers Allowance support in the past and even as someone who is, you know, well-educated and articulate, it, I found it extremely difficult, like yeah. emotionally difficult. I think there needs to be a lot more emotional support built into the system. Yeah. Um, and two more. Uh, one that actually meets the individuals and families' needs immediately. So one of the biggest problems with universal credit at the moment is that there is a six-week delay before you're able to, to receive support. and Which, if you're going hungry, that's not yeah, really helpful. It's not going to help anyone. So ensuring that there's some way in which we can support immediately. And one that has the responsibility built into the national government, because at the moment, support isn't given to local authorities to meet the community needs. And currently, we're yeah. in a situation where things like crisis loans and community care grants have been abolished. So there's no further assistance that local authorities can offer. However, a significant portion of social security has been localised, meaning central government has no responsibility towards its population mm. as a total. And that's something that we need to change either. Well, just ensuring that if the responsibility is being localised, that local authorities are well resourced in order to deliver that. Yeah, that would make sense. Would make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked a bit about in-work poverty mm. and some of those issues around like not getting a fair fair pay for the work that people are doing. Mm. So what would fair pay actually look like? Mm. Okay, so friends have been campaigning strongly for things like a living wage. So that currently looks like eight pound forty five an hour if you're outside of London and nine pounds seventy five if you're inside of London. Mm-hmm. Their real living wage is calculated to meet the needs of rising costs of rent, food and bills, um, in a way that actually supports individuals to live healthy and fulfilled lives. This work has been spearheaded by a Lancaster meeting and we're slowly seeing more and more Quaker organisations sign up to living wage accreditation, which is really exciting. Yeah. And it's definitely something, it's very it's a very immediate and practical thing that we can explore and campaign for in mm. terms of fair pay. And another one is supporting or moving organisations towards publishing differences between the highest and the lowest salaries that they earn. So this is something that Quakers in Britain already signed up to. It's called the pay compare mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means that the ratio between the highest and the lowest earner is within a certain boundary. And currently ours is uh, 1 to 4.7. And we know that one of the highest, one of the drivers of economic inequality is that disparity between the highest and the lowest mm-hmm. um, earners within an organisation. So this is another great example of how we can establish fair pay within okay. uh, different organisations that we work in. The world of work is rapidly changing. Mm. How do we respond to this to protect people who are in employment? Yeah, so there's a lot of information on our website about exactly what zero-hour contracts and the gig economy are, so maybe I'll leave that aside for now um, Mm -hmm. and talk a little bit about how we can attend to it. So ultimately what's happening is that worker protection mechanisms have not adapted fast enough to be able to meet the changing ways in which work exists now. So as I mentioned, the sort of this platform that exists without a sort of management structure or, or, you know, any form of support that you would normally get as an employer. The good thing is there have been some really good cases where, so for example, I mean, it's classic in Sweden and Norway, <laughs> uh, where such work does exist. Platforms mm-hmm. have been developed to be able to ultimately unify short-term contractors and those on zero-hour contracts or who are sort of income as Mm self-employed to provide them I guess with a sort of cooperative community style set of systems that support 
sick pay or like access to legal aid and that kind of thing. Yeah. So those are the, the sort of elements that we're looking for. So first, access to an actual legal budget, a budget that supports workers taking their employers to work tribunals. Because mm, that's um, been cut recently, hasn't that's it? That's been cut. And so that's making that um, a lot harder. And gaining full employee status for workers to provide them with basic worker rights, which has also recently been the case of some Uber drivers. One of the most important things within most workplaces is to provide space for collective bargaining to allow workers to collectively organise. Currently, the way that we see more and more systems set up is that workers are isolated Mm -hmm. from uh, their co-workers, so Uber drivers don't know each other, (laughs) and so they can't organise together. And isolation is one of the biggest ways in which you can uh, reduce the power of unions. And so finding a way in which to build community within Mm -hmm. workers is really important. And there's all that ongoing prejudice that a lot of employers have. Yes, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, yeah, the ones who feel it the most are the ones who are already feeling (laughs) (laughs) uh, the impact of systems of prejudice that exist. Um, And then, of course, ensuring that universal credit is set up to be able to identify what work is Mm -hmm. and um, what work isn't work that's supporting people to live and flourish and what work is work. And that means people are able to so that there are allowances within the credit system, the universal credit system to adapt significantly to the way people receive wages. Okay, yeah, that would be helpful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And what do we do about multinational companies not paying their fair share of tax? (laughs) So this is really interesting because I think whilst it seems quite a vast issue to many people, the idea of global tax havens and tax evasion, actually it can come immediately direct to us as a means to engage. So as in Quakers in Britain, many Quakers have investments that they personally hold and exploring these investments to see where that money is going is a really good starting point. So mm-hmm. having a bit of a research around in your investment profile, thinking about which companies you're a shareholder in, and actually acting like an, you know, being an active and engaged shareholder in that, which is something that we've been supporting many friends to do. And you can refer to the website Your Faith, Your Finance, which okay. make, allows you to explore many different areas of um, personal investments, but mm-hmm. also... Thinking about your workplace and your workplace investments is also a really uh, good place to start. Okay. What about those of us who maybe don't have investments? Mm, yeah. So like me, <laughs> I don't have an investment. No. If you were thinking about investing or if you were just interested, you can campaign and push towards a fair tax mark, which is something a bit similar where you have companies who are basically publishing where their investments are and where their money goes and how it um, supports their shareholders. So a fair tax mark is a really good way of basically, yeah, pushing equal systems of tax. So we know that money is coming into HMRC that is actually owed to it. And then more broadly, I think it's important to bring conversations about inequality relating to the way the system exists, where it already privileges, it privileges they're already wealthy because they have access to those systems. And so just bringing that into the discussion, like we were having earlier, about social security systems and, you know, who who benefits or who actually has rights to that. Mm -hmm. Currently, there is just not enough conversation around the inequality that's already built within the system because of the way that those who are wealthy can continue to avoid paying tax. And those small groups of people who often struggle to pay their tax because they don't have or they're the ones that are then targeted <laughs> I guess by okay. HMRC we have an election coming up mm. what are the issues that people can really bring up with candidates and, and mm. the things that might be coming up in manifestos that parties are actually beginning to commit on mm. so I think it's really important 
for us to bring about this conversation about work and hunger. Changes to work systems and how our social security system and our employment laws are just not supporting those who are trying to work and trying to make a living, but are struggling to. So I think that the area of work and inequality within existing work systems is important. I think questioning candidates around the social security system and the kind of social security system they would like to see and trying to link that to Quaker values and principles and being able to have that conversation either in reflection of what already exists or in what you would like to see exist. I think it's really important to give personal stories of support that you're offering to your community. So if you do volunteer in a food bank or a homeless shelter or any other, you know, a migrant Mm -hmm. rights centre, then bringing that up as a real concern and backing that with statistics, I guess, of like how that is a rising issue across the UK. And I also think it's really important to, yes, bring up that real disparity between companies that are able to avoid tax and those who are being targeted for not paying their tax but are actually uh, small claimants and not going to bring in the kinds of money that we want to see, such as the £16 that's lost at the moment because of tax evasion, that should be there to support not not warfare and defence budgets, but social security budgets and the housing system and employment support and that kind of thing. So, yeah, ensuring that any revenue coming to the government is going to be there to support the most vulnerable in society. Are, are you hopeful that the, that the situation might change in the next few years? I'm hopeful that with both trying to attend to the concerns of our current economic system and a recognition that the current economic system isn't working in the way that we want it to and that we are trying to build a new one and that recognition of that shift that needs to happen that sometime in the next few decades we might see some changes <laughs> uh, uh, I mean I'm, I'm very proud of the work that Quakers in Britain are doing on this issue and I think it's yeah I'm looking forward to spending the next few months here to be able to explore that a little bit more and okay. yeah put some of that learning in place Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. It's been really good to hear some of your thoughts about about these issues kind of coming up for everyone at the moment. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, you too. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Hi, Mari. Thanks for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for inviting me back, Elizabeth. No problem. So we've been talking about economic inequality to do with the general election. Mm -hmm. What are the issues that are coming up in Scotland? Well, I think it's quite an interesting time in Scotland at the moment because there are going to be some benefits devolved to Holyrood and there are quite a few benefits that are being devolved. So that means for some issues that people want to campaign on, if people wanted to sort of do something around personal independent payments or disability living allowance, they would actually now be going to Holyrood rather than to Westminster. Over the last few years, the Westminster government has made cuts to social security payments, and so some of those are now going to be devolved. Some of them will be, yes, but we aren't necessarily going to get more money. So if the Scottish government wants to mitigate against the cuts in the way it has done with the bedroom tax, so mm-hmm. Scottish people no longer, they do pay the bedroom tax, but they get the money then back from the Scottish government, mm-hmm. it's not going to be quite so easy for them to do that with every single cut that gets made. And we do know there probably will be more cuts. So there is still budget balancing that they're going to need to do. So how do people bring this up with their parliamentary candidates then? 
Well, I think it is important to still be plugged into what's happening in Westminster because there are some very important benefits which are still going to be controlled from there. So universal credit, you know, if you're made unemployed, it's still all going to come from Westminster and it is Westminster that is going to be setting the budgets that the Scottish government will then be having to work too. So I think it is important to sort of realise there's a balance between working with your MP and your MSP. Quite often, if they are from the same party, they might share an office anyway, so it's quite easy to contact them both. Um, if they're from different parties, they may not, well, they definitely won't share an office, but they may or may not work together on an issue. It kind of depends a bit on the issue, how local it is to their constituents and whether they actually agree with the problem the constituents having and want to help them solve it. There are lots of different ways that people can get involved then and that yeah. might involve some working together. It might do. It's probably going to be more up to um, the individuals and the way they prefer to work. Some MPs have been uh, there for a very short time, so it's not always necessarily easy to judge what they're going to do, but they would obviously work with their Scottish colleagues in Holyrood. So what about the things to do with the tax dodging and tax avoidance? How do people in Scotland get involved with that? Okay, well, Oxfam has actually been doing a big campaign uh, with Holyrood because Scotland is sometimes used as a bit of a tax loophole for people to avoid paying tax. So checking out what Oxfam Scotland are doing and getting involved in their campaign would probably be a useful thing to do. Again, if it comes to corporation tax, this is probably going to be a Westminster thing rather than a Hollywood thing but of course many of the MSPs still like to have an opinion on mm -hmm. policy and things that are happening at Westminster. Brilliant okay and there's been Quakers have been involved in some of the conversations happening around tax justice in Scotland what sorts of things have you been doing? Yeah, this has been a really interesting vein of work for me. We've not done much on tax justice and social and economic justice before. So it's been a new area and obviously it is quite complex. Tax does tend to be a complex thing. So we started off last October by holding a symposium and we invited three speakers. Leslie Riddick, who's a very well-respected broadcaster and journalist. Richard Murphy, who I think... Uh, most people know from The Joy of Tax, which Indeed, came yes. out a year or a couple of years ago. Yeah. And Andy Whiteman, who is a green MSP, and he's very well known for his campaigning on land reform. Okay. So all we did this as part of the Independent and Radical Book Fair. And I have to say, on the Friday night, I went to bed thinking, I've organised a tax event for 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> and I was really scared Doesn't nobody really... would come. Yeah. <laughs> Taxes tend not to get people out of bed in the morning. Right? Not really. So, yeah, I had that moment where, you know, I was afraid it's like throwing a party and you think no one's going to come. But we actually had a really huge audience. We had to bring in more 
chairs for people and even then there were people sort of sitting in the aisles sitting on the floor and there's people crowding around the doors to listen and so it was actually a huge success and a really good event and there's a lot of really interesting ideas that came out of it there is a recording of it on the Radage University website so if anybody wants to listen to it they can go there to their podcast section and find the recording We'll add a link to that section at quaker.org.uk slash keywitness for anybody who wants to listen. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much for talking to me today, Mari. Hopefully we can catch up with you again soon. Okay. I'd really enjoy that. Thanks. Thanks. Very interesting stuff there. Um, I know the inequality work is a big piece of, of work for Quickers in Britain, and uh, and it's always nice to hear from Mari up there in Scotland. Yes, indeed, lots of lovely Skype interviews. Those of you who have listened to the previous podcast will know that we talked a little bit about climate change. We've now talked a little bit about inequality, but as this is the last podcast before the general election, there are also two other issues which we we talked to Jess about two episodes ago. Mm-hmm. But we just thought we'd catch up very briefly with the program workers here on those issues yeah and if you fancy it you can catch up with all of the election news at www.quakervote.org.uk or on twitter using the handle at quakervote so yeah brilliant but uh we will now hear from the two tims not at the same time (laughs) no over to you i'm with tim wallace uh remind us what you do for quakers in britain i work for quaker peace and social witness on peace and disarmament so i both represent Quakers nationally on on these issues and support Quakers locally uh, with the things that they're doing on these issues. Excellent. Um, And we're thinking about the general election today. So what's kind of the ask relating to your work? Well, a big part of my work is about nuclear disarmament. It's been an issue for Quakers uh, since the day the bomb was first dropped on Hiroshima and the world found out about the horrific consequences of these weapons. And we've been campaigning ever since. And we are finally at the point internationally where there is a a treaty being negotiated at the United Nations to ban nuclear weapons in the same way that chemical weapons, biological weapons have been banned, landmines, cluster munitions and and various other types of weapons have been banned because they're, they're considered inhumane and unacceptable. And the most inhumane and unacceptable of all weapons are the nuclear ones, and it's time for them to be banned as well. So that's what we're asking, is, is for the UK government to be taking part, not just taking part, but you know, taking a lead and you know, playing a constructive role in the global efforts to get rid of nuclear weapons, which, which they've promised to do. So those global efforts, I believe, they're currently based in the negotiations happening in New York. Um, were you there? You were there recently, Tim. Do you want to talk about that? I was. Bit? I was at the uh, start of the negotiations for this new treaty uh, back in the end of March. It was very exciting. I was representing Quakers in Britain and four other UK churches, the this Church, the Baptist Union, the Church of Scotland and the United Reformed Church. I had a statement signed by all all five churches, which I presented to the UN, and was involved in the in the lobbying of delegations and meeting with um, countries that were not present, including the UK, <laughs> and basically you know trying to help move this negotiation along. And what was the atmosphere there? The atmosphere was amazing. It was very exciting. I mean, as you as you probably know, not not only the UK but most of the other nuclear powers and NATO states were boycotting the session, which sounded, you know, uh, bad in, in one sense. But in fact, what it meant was that for the very first time, actually, 
all the rest of the world, all the countries of Latin America, Africa, Asia, Pacific, um, they were all in the room with one aim, which they've had on the table since 1945, to get rid of these weapons and to ban them. And um, without the US and the UK and other big powers telling them, no, you can't do that, they were just going ahead and doing it. And, uh, so the atmosphere was fantastic. You know, they were all... And, and you know, I've, I, met, I met this one woman who's been going to these... UN meetings for 40 years and she said she's never seen this kind of atmosphere where the countries are really being empowered to stand up and speak up and try to get something done. And what what's kind of the time scale? What's the next step? So the negotiations uh, resume uh, on the 15th of June, which is the week after the election. There's still a chance for the UK to decide to change their mind and to participate in those negotiations. They go until the 7th of July. And the people that, uh, all the people that I met in, in, in March were quite confident that they will have a treaty to sign on the 7th of July. I mean, it, it, might, it might be delayed, it might go on, you know, into next year or whatever. But they're pretty confident that they'll have a treaty and and that it'll be open for signing and ratification and coming into force. Okay. And quickly, what does it mean if it does come into force? Well, it won't won't get rid of the weapons because only the countries that have the nuclear weapons can do that. Um, What it is is a very, very powerful statement and a legally binding statement that will be signed, I mean, by a clear majority of countries, if not an overwhelming majority of countries of the world, saying we do not accept these weapons they are not legal under international humanitarian law and we will not participate in any stage of the process of allowing countries to carry on having them. So that means for the UK, for instance, you know, if we, we've just, as you know, Parliament has just decided to, to build four new Trident submarines. But the world is, you know, we live in a very interconnected, interdependent world and an and and economy and a, and a banking system which relies on many, many other countries. You can't just build submarines in England and uh, not be affected by anything going on in the rest of the world. So if we, if we need a screw from Slovenia in order to build the submarine and Slovenia signs this treaty and says no sorry you can't have that screw you know the, uh, okay. if, if we need to borrow money from a Swiss bank and Switzerland has signed the treaty and says sorry you can't have that money for nuclear weapons you know it's going to it's going to impinge directly on the UK building Trident submarines but you know the the US sent around a memo to all the NATO countries saying you know don't sign this treaty because this is going to be bad for us it's going to mean we can't you know take our ships into ports, it means we can't fly our planes across uh, airspace, it means we can't do our exercises and training, and, and it's going to undermine the public understanding of deterrence, which is, you know, the whole point of it, really, which is to say, well, you know, we don't accept this, we don't accept the idea that you can threaten the world uh, with mass, you know, annihilation, you know, just as a means of supposedly protecting yourself. So with the general election in mind, what we're saying is we want Britain to participate in, in these talks, presumably maybe sign this and agree to get rid of yeah. nuclear weapons. Yeah. How can individuals do that in this electoral process? What's the impact you can have as an individual? Yeah, it's a great opportunity to, to challenge all candidates from all parties about this issue because nobody's talking about it. Most people don't know anything about these negotiations going on at the UN. This is multilateral disarmament. It's something that every political party ever has said they're in favour of 
and yet they're not they're not taking part. So let's challenge them on that. Let's you know raise it in hustings. Let's raise it with candidates in individual meetings. Let's put articles in the you know letters in the local papers, whatever, to raise this issue. Britain should be attending these nuclear negotiations. Excellent. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah. Uh, and with Tim G, uh, remind us what you do here, Tim. <laughs> I am the developer of the Forced Migration Programme, so I'm working with Quaker Meetings across the country to develop something that we can do together in order to change the situation for newcomers coming to this country. Okay. And we're thinking about the election, which is coming up very soon. What's the ask from your area of work? What's the kind of the key message that you want to get across? Uh, well, there's two things that we're uh, particularly concerned about. One is actually about the language that is used in the election itself. So earlier this year, Meeting for Sufferings, that's the body that meets in between big yearly meetings to make decisions, shared their concern about the, the rise in overt racism. So the first ask is to do with actually the language that candidates and commentators use. And we're asking that those anyone participating in the election doesn't act or speak in ways that are likely to generate prejudice or hostility between different groups. How does that relate to Quaker values? What's the link there? If people ask what Quakers are, the most common answer is that we believe that there's that of God in every person, and that means that we we respect and we listen to each person equally. And, and I think that that hasn't been totally happening in the election campaign so far. There has been some really uncomfortable, unacceptable language so far. So, so the first of our asks is to do with the discourse that's used. And we've actually also, we're, we're seeking to be patterns and examples ourselves. And we've asked that if a local meeting is hosting a hustings, that they also seek to do it in a way that ensures and makes really clear that every person is welcome and that certain words, certain ways of talking about newcomers to this country aren't acceptable. So as an individual, is that the kind of the key thing of, of, of how they can get involved or are there other things that you would suggest during the election that they can do? So there's a second thing. Um, yeah. so, so obviously lots of meetings will be hosting hustings. Lots of local Quakers will go to candidate hustings uh, by other people as well. And we'd really love it if friends would be able to ask about the immigration detention system in the UK. Every year, 30,000 people are put in prison-like conditions without a time limit, usually without even having committed or having been convicted of a crime. Uh, Our taxes are used to fund private companies to run these immigration detention centres where there are reports of maltreatment going on. So if... Friends would be happy to go to hustings and ask if candidates would call on the government to close immigration detention centres. That would be really useful to the wider movement. And if a politician or a candidate isn't willing to commit to closing immigration detention centres, will they at least promise to work for a time limit on how long someone can be detained? Okay, so that's something that someone can do, having listened to the podcast whether Quaker or non-Quaker, they can go away and sort of ask that question. Is there anything that's happening here soon? No, there is. So our contribution after the general election is to provide a space during Refugee Week where people of all walks of life can come together and discuss and can think about the role of culture in shaping a country of peace, love and unity. So from 19th to the 25th of June, 
There are going to be events at Friends House Houston right through the week. There's going to be a library open day on the Monday. There's going to be authors of The Good Immigrant coming in on the Monday night. That's on the 19th of June. Uh, on Tuesday, there's a World Refugee Day meeting for worship. Uh, there are author events right through the week. And then there's a whole day of action and reflection on the Sunday, that which we're calling Sanctuary Sunday which finishes in a refugee in which uh, newcomers to Britain and long-standing residents can drink a cup of tea together. So all of that's happening at Friends Health from the 19th to 25th of June. And how do you find out about those events? You go to quaker.org.uk forward slash migration and all of the information and all of the, uh, the links for booking are right there. Excellent. So we've got some key asks for during the election. We've got kind of practical things and then we've got Refugee Week coming up. And I'm sure we'll uh, talk to you about that after it happens. Or Absolutely. During. Thanks very much. Thank you for your time. All the stuff around Refugee Week sounds amazing. Is there any stuff happening outside of London that people can get involved with? There, there is, yes. Um, it's a national campaign and we uh, caught up briefly with Tim after the interview and there is lots of things going on on the Refugee Week website but there's also some specific Quakery things happening. So the Journeyman Theatre, which is a Quaker theatre company, is doing a performance of The Bundle at Onestead Birmingham and in Glasgow and then there's also looking like there's going to be some Refugee Week stuff in Lancaster, Doncaster, Bishops, Castle and possibly a few other places. So if you're taking part in any Refugee Week events or you're organising a uh, Refugee Week in your Quaker meeting, get in touch with Tim G at Timothy G, just the letter, at quaker.org.uk to get in touch. Yeah, to, yeah. Let, to let him know. To um, let him know. Yes, hopefully in our next podcast we'll be catching up with Ellis. He's back from the Peace Boat, so we'll be catching up with him as well. And that will be our After the Election podcast. Great. And don't forget that you can like us on SoundCloud, rate us on iTunes, and share any feedback with us on Twitter using the hashtag QWitness. You can also email comments or tell us what you'd like to hear more about by emailing me on elizabethp at quaker.org.uk. Fantastic. Go well, friends. Thanks for listening.